Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. So on this episode of the podcast, we are talking to 19, almost 20-year-old Talia Ung from Canada. She's a student athlete and just finished her second year of her undergraduate degree in life science at Master University in Hamilton. At the same time, she trains for badminton competitively and she's been able to win titles in the under 17 and under 19 junior Pan Am championships in girls singles, win a silver at the Onyx KND International Challenge in women's singles and win a bronze at the senior Pan Am championships. Outside of badminton, Talia has lots of different hobbies and they include painting, fishing, and baking. From badminton, probably just work hard and fitness is very important. So like you really got to practice cardio, like fitness and weights. Cause if you don't have that fundamental, then like you can't really use your skills on the court and don't be afraid to go overseas, try training with new people and reach out of your comfort zone. Cause like maybe like their training style, it fits you and you can like learn from that and like take it back. So when you go back home, like you can apply that to your own training programs. And then for life in general, I just feel like life is short. So just do whatever you want, not whatever you want. Think it through first, but don't be afraid to do what you're passionate about. So Talia, welcome onto the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. We've been trying to tee up this podcast for a little while and I'm really happy this is happening. So let's get straight into it. So usually what happens on the start of the podcast is we talk about your badminton story and basically how you got started in the sport and how old were you? I started playing slash training when I was nine years old. I actually got into it because of my parents, because when I was younger, they used to have semi-private lessons with my very first coach. His name is Effendi. And I used to just run around the court and like stack the shuttles because I was too young back then. And then I remember when I was like, maybe like seven and I tagged along to one of their semi-private lessons. My dad asked Effendi if I had any potential in badminton. And then he said that I was too young. So then he told me to go back to dancing because at the time I used to dance competitively as well. And then I think like a couple of years later, like when I was nine, I went back to him and then he asked if I have potential now, like, could I start now? I think he said like, yeah. And then I started and I just started with like once a week lessons, like Sunday classes recreationally. And then I played my first tournament. I think it was U10. And I got second in singles. And then my parents were like, oh, like, she's actually like not bad. And then I started playing more, training more. And yeah, now I represent Canada like internationally. So. Well, that's a pretty big jump from a 10 year old winning, winning under 10s, a silver medal and then representing Canada. So we'll get into that story about that kind of transition. But before we get into that, how old were you when you actually started dancing and what kind of dancing was it? I literally don't remember when I started dancing because I think I was really young, maybe like five. <laughs> yeah. And I started recreationally first and then I got into competitive dancing. I did ballet, tap and jazz competitively. And I did acro like not competitively. And it was like a pretty big part of my life because when I was younger, I used to do a lot of extracurriculars, like not just dancing and badminton, but I also did piano and I did like Chinese Saturday classes, which my mom made me go to. I did swimming as well. Just like a lot of stuff going on. But then like in the end, when I got older, I kind of pushed my focus towards badminton. So I didn't really have much time for the other stuff. So I slowly like each thing kind of dropped off. Now I just play badminton. Yeah. That's a funny story because especially in Australia and probably the same over there, you'd have to correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of, I guess, Asian parents do encourage their kids to do a lot of things. So I would say I did exactly the same as you. So piano, swimming, badminton, but instead of dancing, I was playing soccer and then Chinese class, but I obviously didn't pay attention because I can't speak Chinese now, which I regret being a little, little brat about having to go because it was on Saturday, right? So I hated it. Absolutely hated Chinese school. But from that perspective, when you went into badminton, did you find that dancing really helped you with footwork? Sort of in a way, yes, especially with like agility stuff, because I feel like I picked up faster on agility compared to my teammates because I was more able to like coordinate myself and also stretching because dancing is not just like, oh, like jazz class, tap class, but there's also conditioning classes where I just do stretching. And I think that really helps because obviously from badminton, you get really tight. And when you have tight muscles, that's when you get injured really easily. But I had these like conditioning classes to help me stretch out my muscles a lot. So I didn't really get many injuries when I was younger, maybe like growing pain in the knees, but that's like normal for everyone. But yeah, I think it really helped. So you said the other sports and, and dancing kind of dropped off 
as you got more and more, uh, I guess, keen and competitive in terms of badminton. That, so, Talia, how, how do you make that decision between should you continue with pursuing competitive dancing and going to the shuttle side of things? Mm, well, I kind of decided that I had to choose one eventually because I was very, like my schedule was super packed. Like I would have school and then my parents would like drive me directly to dance. And then after dance, it would be like around, I think like 6.30, something like that. And then they would come pick me up and then I'd eat my dinner like out of a thermos in the car. And then I'd change in the car and then I start training at like 7.30 to like 10. And then, yeah, it was just getting very like tiring for me. And my parents were like, oh, like you need to like choose one eventually. And it was like a hard decision, but eventually like I made it and I don't regret the decision I made. Awesome. Awesome. So when was that decision actually made? So how old were you then? I literally don't remember. I think maybe when I was like 15. Or I could be completely off. I think around 15, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So then what did that mean for your badminton then? So when you decided to make that change, like did the training frequency just ramp up a lot because you had so much time? And then what did it, what was that change like? So how much did it increase? By a lot. Cause basically like all the time I was dancing, just like shifted to badminton instead. And same with like piano and everything. So I trained a lot more. I had a lot more like private lessons with my coach and like team training. Also like moved from like team two to team one, I think at that time. So then I was training with like better players as well. So training was tougher and yeah, it was just a lot more volume. So this might be backtracking a little bit, Talia, but when Effendi was sort of assessing your your playing skills when you were seven years old, was that based on your shuttle stacking? And then like when you were nine, was you just like like shuttle stacking faster? No, 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 no. I don't think it was based off of like shuttle stacking speed. I think it was just like my age. Like, I don't know. He said I was too young. So then I was like, okay. I didn't really care back then because I was so young. My dad was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. And so when you did finally make that decision, that teenage sort of age to switch from competitive dancing as well as competitive badminton, take us on a journey from there. How did you get to where you are now? So as I said, like training frequency and volume increased much more. And I started playing more tournaments as well, provincially and nationally. I don't think I started international tournaments until much later, but definitely more provincial and national tournaments. And then I would also play up sometimes, like instead of playing like U16, I'd play like U19. And I think that really helped me as well, playing with like older players who have more experience and like more variety in their shots and skills and stuff like that. Yeah. And then eventually like I switched clubs in 2017 to Ontario Badminton Academy. It's like a relatively new club. So like many people haven't heard of it, I feel like. And I follow this Chinese coach now. His name is William. And now I play like a lot more international tournaments, national as well, like senior nationals and Pan Am tournaments. And yeah, training is different though. I feel like with William compared to Effendi, because I feel like when I trained with Effendi, I was like much younger and he did more like endurance stuff. 
and less skill stuff. It was more like drills or like, like running around the court. And I think that was very helpful actually. Cause like when I was younger, like I think a lot of people were scared to play against me because I'd like be so like my endurance would be good. And like, I'd get like every shot that they hit. So I'm thankful for like Effendi for teaching me all of that and like pushing me when he was training me and everything. But now I feel like training with William, it's more focused on skill and quality of shot. But I think both are very important. Like skill and fitness are both super important. I feel like if if I wasn't fit enough and I can't even get to the bird, then I wouldn't be able to use my skill. So I think both coaches helped me a lot. And yeah. Yeah, definitely sounds that way. And that's what I guess when we talk about why we love badminton, that's one of the reasons why, because there are so many aspects to it, right? You can be fit, but if you don't have the skill to execute, then you can't really put the shuttle away or create good opportunities. And if you can't get to the shuttle because you're too tired or too slow, then of course you don't have to, the opportunity to use your skill. So when you when you look at your skill and what you're doing now with William, what would you say at the moment is one of the, the biggest things that you're working on in your training now? Well, before I just played the senior Pan Am champs. And before that, we were working a lot on like retrieving shots, like especially backhand. We worked on my backhand a lot. Like every single time we had private lesson, we just do like backhand and then like follow up to the net or like just like random, like four corners front and back, but mostly I'm retrieving at the back. And that was really helpful because during my matches, I definitely use a lot of backhand and it, like good quality backhands. And like saved a lot of good shots made by my opponent. But more recently, after I came back from Pan Ams, like William and I had kind of a debrief about how I played at the tournament and what I have to work on. And one major point he said was that I have to work on kind of like my defense and like staying lower. Since I'm so tall, like other players tend to like attack and make me like bend down because obviously long legs, like you move slower. So he's like, yeah, like you need to improve on that because like your skills are already pretty good. You have to improve on like staying low and like making sure your legs are strong enough to stand like multiple like hard matches. Since like at tournaments, you're playing like match after match each day. And it's really important to make sure your legs are like strong enough. Cause at the Pan Ams, I played until the semifinals. I lost to Bei Wen Zhang. But like when I played her that day, like I had to tape my leg because I was not injured, I think. It was just like my muscle was like pulled a little bit. So I had to like tape it and stuff and it was hard to lunge. And William like noticed that and like he pointed it out and was like, you need to make sure like your training focuses more on your legs. So like this doesn't happen. And yeah, more endurance. Yeah. So coming back to that endurance piece, like, of course, when you play a long tournament there, it is being able to string those matches of tiring matches over and over and over day after day after day, which does have that impact. But just digging into your game against Baywin, I didn't see the match personally myself, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But of course, Baywin is one of the like a top player in the world. How did you feel you went? And have you played her before? No, I've never played her before. Going into the match, I didn't really like expect to win, if I'm being honest, because she's literally 14th in the world, I think. And yeah, I just want to see where my level was at compared to her. Cause like, she's like a world-class player and I want to get there eventually one day. When I started, I was super nervous, but then as we started playing the first match, I was like, okay, like, this is not bad. And I was doing like pretty well in the first game too. I was leading at 11. Yeah. And then she caught up afterwards. But when I was leading at 11, I was like, whoa, I can actually do this. 
And the first game was good. And I attacked a lot and I got her on a couple of my shots, which was good. But then after 11, it kind of went downhill and she caught up. I think like in the first 11 points, she was kind of testing and like testing the waters, like seeing what my strengths and weaknesses were sort of. And then like second half, she caught on and then she like just attacked. And second game, I was tired. I don't know why. Cause like the whole tournament, I was fine. Like my endurance was fine, even though it was kind of hot there in Guatemala. I don't know. But second game, like I felt so out of breath. I don't know if it was like a buildup of tiredness from the other matches I played up to semis. But yeah, I had trouble like breathing a little and my defense was slower. My legs definitely slowed down because when when I rewatched it, I could like tell my speed was way lower and I didn't attack as much because I wasn't fast enough. So I feel like if I like improve on that aspect and like keep being my legs like fast enough and like improving my endurance, I'd be able to get a closer score next time. Cool. Okay. So Talia, with your performance against Baywin, you know, obviously you mentioned that you, you felt like from an endurance perspective, you struggled and that was, I guess, a key area that, that William, your coach, had pointed out afterwards and, you know, one of the areas that you are currently working on. If you were to give yourself some advice that could have helped you on the day or outside of the endurance piece, what would that be? Probably try to be more patient and don't like a hundred percent attack. Cause in the first game, I kind of went like full speed. And then I think that's why I got so tired in the second game. I should have probably like slowed down a little bit and like conserve my energy <laughs> sort of, and like play longer rallies. Cause I think some of the rallies were like really short. Just try to, cause she's, well, she's not old, but older than me, obviously. So I feel like a key advice for myself whenever I play older players is just like make them run first because I can probably outrun them and don't let them control me. Just try to make them run first, make them tired and then attack because that's when it's most effective. Good advice. So hopefully next time you play her or any other senior player, then you'll take that advice on into that match. So Tali, let's go back into to what you're doing with badminton now with your training what did your training look like at the moment? And what are you working towards? Like right this instant? Um, yeah, so training at the moment, but then we can talk about like where you want to be in a year or three years or five years. Or what's the vision for, for Talia's badminton career? Okay, so basically right now, training is like not happening because COVID. I don't know about you guys, but like we're under lockdown still. Like it's slowly lifting now. But like badminton clubs are still closed as of right now. I still do train though, sort of, because I have an exemption letter from Badminton Canada. So I'm like allowed to train. So I've just been having private lessons with my coach, William. And that's it. Because <laughs> that's all I'm allowed to do as of right now. And for the future, I want to try to qualify for the Olympics and represent Canada in women's singles. My plan is to... Right now I'm like studying, I'm in university. I just finished second year, as you said earlier. I'm trying to finish my degree in three years instead of four and then getting into med school, like get admitted first and then defer and then play badminton for however long I want. And then after I'm done, like go back to med school and then study. That's my plan as of right now, but yeah. Okay, good, yeah. 
No, that's cool because I think one of the questions that we wanted to ask you later in the podcast was, you know, why life science and where that was going to take you. So it's good to get your perspective on what that plan is in terms of your academic endeavors. But in terms of going switching back to badminton, when you're talking about getting into the Olympics, are you talking the Paris Olympics? Mm-hmm. Paris Olympics for sure. I don't know if I'm going to try for the next one as well. Depends like how the Paris one goes first. Yeah. Okay. So when you go into, you say you're in second year, you're trying to, I guess, increase your workload to get it done in three years. Then you have the opportunity to focus on badminton because of, because of course, an Olympic campaign involves a lot of traveling away from home a lot of the year. So when we look at your degree in life sciences, like what does, I actually don't know what life sciences is. I don't know if there's a course here called life sciences. So what is that? It's just like a really like full science program. I feel like I take a bunch of courses. Like I pretty much take all the sciences, biology, organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, physics, and like other electives as well. Some life science courses, like science communication and like how to write a lab report and stuff like that. It's just like a really general science program. I feel like a lot of people who want to go to med school take. Yeah. And it has a lot of electives as well. So I think a lot of people take this program because like they can choose like easier electives and then have a higher GPA for med school applications. Yeah. In Melbourne, the course that most students go into is biomedical science, which is very, I think it's a very similar to life science because in essence, you're studying like microorganisms, plants, animals, humans, et cetera. So definitely the the right sort of trajectory if you want to get into med school. So I guess on that same track, Talia, why medicine? Well, I've always been interested in biology and like the human body. Like ever since like forever, I feel like I was always interested in biology. But then in grade 10, I think we like dissected some like heart. I don't remember what animal exactly, but then I was like, whoa, this is like so cool. And I was just like, okay, like maybe I'll go into surgery. And when we learned about the heart, I also like fell in love with it. You know, I fell in love, but like, I was like, whoa, it's so cool. The heart controls so much in the body. And if it stops, you die. You know what I mean? It's so important in the body. And that's like when I realized I think I want to do heart surgery, cardiothoracic surgery. Yeah. From that moment on. And then ever since I've just been like setting my mind on med school. And also, I don't know if you guys know, but my dad passed away last year because of a heart attack. So that also further pushes me towards like that direction because I don't want that happening to anyone else. So yeah, heart surgeon, that's what I want to be. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear that, Talia. No, I wasn't aware of that. So sorry to hear that. And I'm sure that he's very proud of what you're doing and what your vision is in terms of badminton as well as your academic career as well. When you were talking about dissecting the heart, I just, I remember doing that in high school as well, but I think it was a frog, the frog in science class. And then I started to think, um, I wonder if Henry was thinking that when he decided to be a vet. Definitely not. Usually it's like it's a cow's heart or like a sheep's heart, depending on you know, livestock supply, et cetera. But yeah, it's definitely, I wasn't like, yeah, I love this heart anatomy. I should go become a vet. My decision to become a vet or, or head into sort of the medicinal kind of pathways was always sort of predetermined, not so much a sudden passion for this, you know, beating heart that I'm dissecting. But I think the most, the most common one that 
we see in high school or the one that I did was, yeah, a frog and it was to do with like conducting nerve impulses. Maybe that was in, in university actually, not high school, but I think it was in, in biology and in first year where you get like a frog or part of a frog and, and you get to like their nerves and make them do a little kick. But yeah, that's not the, also not the reason why I went down the, the vet pathway as well. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright, and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now, it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. But anyway, back to you, Talia. Hope that you do succeed in, in becoming a cardio cardiothoracic surgeon, I guess, is, is what, what you're hoping to yeah, lots of studying. Oh my God, <laughs> so many more years. Yikes. But yeah, that's what I want to do as of right now. Yeah, well, that's that's really exciting. And then we hope you get there. It's certainly a very competitive space, but there, I think there's a lot of interesting advancements and innovation in, in certainly the medical space. And it, yeah, it's just life sciences in general because of converging technologies and advancement of things like artificial intelligence, et cetera. And you could be essentially performing heart surgery from Canada on someone in Australia in however many years' time, which would be really awesome uh, if, if that was the case and, and if you were able to save lives that way as well. So good luck to you and hope, hope that you can achieve all you can in, in terms of your academic career. In terms of, I guess, academics as well as balancing that competitive side of you in, in, in the badminton space, yeah, how do you manage to keep up? Because obviously it's challenging to try and get into med school as well as compete on a international as well as a national level at badminton. Yeah, balancing school and badminton has probably been in like the majority of my life because even in high school, I had to balance both because in high school, that was when I was playing a lot of national tournaments within like Canada. So I'd have to travel a lot and I'd miss a lot of school. I think like in grade 12 or grade 11, I was only there for like 60% of the school year on my attendance and it's obviously hard but I think like over the years I was able to kind of like learn how to do it I always just stay super organized I have like an agenda and like everything in the agenda I write a to-do list every week and before I leave for my tournaments I always like organize everything and ask the teachers slash profs like everything I'm gonna miss and take everything I need with me before I go. So like I'm prepared when I'm there to like keep working on stuff. And also when I come back, it's much easier to kind of like get back into classes and like not be confused. And in first year, I had a lot of trouble balancing school and badminton, even though I wasn't training as much since I was in Hamilton. I missed a month of school because I was world juniors in Russia for a month. And it was like pretty bad for a semester. I think I got like, I'm for like chemistry, which was one of the hardest courses I was taking. I missed the first midterm because I was away at world juniors. And then the second midterm, I got like a 52, I think. 
And I was shook (laughs) because I was used to getting like 90 pluses in high school. And when my mom told me to do practice papers in university, I was like, no, like I don't need any of that. Like I know how to study because I get 90 pluses in high school. So I didn't listen to her. And yeah, I got a 52. So like, (laughs) I was so scared to tell my parents because they expect high grades from me. But surprisingly, my mom was like, fine. And when I asked her if I should drop the course, cause like it would bring down my GPA. She was like, no. And I was like, okay. So then after that, for the final exam, I studied so hard. I literally did the practice papers like 10 times. And then I'd go to like office hours with the profs and the TAs like every single day and worked really hard. And for the exam, I think I did really well. Cause I like somehow finished with like an A, but like, I don't know, because they have like different marking schemes. So I think like that was in my favor. But anyways, like balancing that was like kind of hard in first year. But then like after I figured out like how to study in university, it got easier. (laughs) Sounds like a learning process for you, Talia. And from 52 to, you know, getting an A is is a pretty impressive achievement. And certainly in in chemistry as well, which is a very challenging and also like a, a fundamental topic that you require for medical school as well. But the whole time you were talking, I was like, that's female Jeff. I think Jeff probably wants to comment here, but basically when you're talking about your work ethic and how you're balancing badminton and school, it just reminded me of how Jeff is as a person with his, his agendas and, and planning his time and, and whatnot. So I think, I think it's time for him to make a comment. Yeah, I was kind of laughing to myself about what, what you were saying because that was... That was and still is literally me with those to-do lists every single week and, and catching up on schoolwork and missing a whole block of school because of tournaments and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's all fun and having to, I guess what you're saying, go to the profs or appeal to the lecturers or the course conveners that you need to take five weeks off and can you please, please, please do the exam after and can you please run through this other session at a different time or switch classes and it's a bit of a battle but at the end of the day I think that when you do talk to them and they understand your passion for the sport and and what you're willing to do when you get back to catch up I think that it's definitely something that they will support you with so that busy lifestyle absolutely understand but that's awesome that you were able to turn it around and I want to comment maybe for the listeners out there who asked maybe in university and studying when you said in the second year when you worked out how to study that was exactly the same for me as well. It was probably in my second year of university that I learned how to study properly. That is the best for me. And then from that point on, it was it was so much easier to do well, I guess, in exams and assessments and compile the knowledge just because of because you understand the way that best serves you because everyone's different in terms of studying. But speaking of balancing things, we understand that you also have three additional Instagram channels. Is that right? Is there is there Tiles Macaroons, Tiles Eat, and Your Girl Tiles? What are they about? Yeah. So like Your Girl Tiles, just like my private account where I just have close people following and I just post random stuff. Yeah. And then Tiles Eats is just like a bunch of food that I eat. Because I think before that account started, I posted like a lot of food on my main account story. And then everyone was just like, oh my God, like, where where's this from it looks so good and like i get that a lot so then people were just like okay just start a food account and i was just okay sure so that's tal's eats and then tal's macarons is just kind of like a small business account because 
I make macarons, if y'all didn't know. And yeah, and it's just like my little business. I started it like a year ago, I think. And it just started because I love baking and I made macarons once or maybe a couple times. And I just like give it to my friends and they'd just be like, oh my God, it's so good. You should start a business. And I was just like, okay, sure. <laughs> so yeah. It, it sounds like you succumb to peer pressure or social pressures quite easily, Talia. It's just like, oh, you should do this, Talia. Oh yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> well, like give me good suggestions. So I'm just like, because okay. You have well. nothing, because you have nothing else to do. <laughs> You've got such a free schedule, right? <laughs> yeah, just, just tack it on, you know. What's your favorite flavor of macaron? Definitely chocolate. What's the favorite? Chocolate. Okay. I don't know which one, but I, I tend to like, like, do you make like those rose water ones? They're oh yeah. Good. I have, ro- I made rose before too. Yeah. I think they're pretty good. And then the pistachios, the pistachios are good as well. I like the pistachios. Oh, I have not tried making that one, but I should. That one's pretty popular too. I feel like a lot of people like pistachio. Salted caramel. Oh my God. I just made that recently. I have some in the fridge, I think. <laughs> Send them over. Send them over. How much does it cost to purchase a dozen macarons from Canada to Australia? I don't know. <laughs> they would probably break like just, while they're being shipped, TBH. So And they'll probably be like rock solid by the time they get here as yeah. well. Because right? you want that sort of nice chewiness to mm-hmm. it. It's making me making me really want macarons at the moment. So <laughs> I'll have to fly over and purchase some of Tao's macarons at some point. But for those that are listening that are actually in Canada, uh, in Hamilton, and are super interested in getting some macarons from you, how much do they cost? What do the listeners need to know about your macarons? They cost $25 Canadian per dozen. And I make a bunch of flavors. Whenever I make a batch, I post on my Instagram and I'm just, I just ask if like anyone like wants to order and like to DM me if they want to order. And yeah, that's kind of how people order usually, or they can also go on my Facebook. I have like a Talos Macarons Facebook page. Some people order with me from there as well. And then I just make them. And if you live in my area, then I deliver as well. But if not, then usually I just meet up with people at like a plaza or something. And then we just meet up to drop off macarons. Sounds sounds like a deal. We've got lots of Canadian listeners on the podcast as well. So hopefully they'll be hitting you up about some macarons and we increase some of that business for you. But you also mentioned about fishing. I like fishing myself, but I don't fish that often. How often do you go fishing? And is it freshwater or saltwater? I don't go that often, but I usually go freshwater fishing with one of my friend's dads. So like my uncle, I guess. And I think he brought me fishing for the first time, like when I was, oof, I don't know how many years ago, like maybe when I was 16, I'm guessing. And I don't know, I just fell in love with it. And that day I caught so many bass. It was just like nonstop and it was so fun. And ever since, like, I've just loved like fishing. Even if you don't catch anything? Yeah. Like, even, like the past few times well not like the most recent time but like the times before that it was literally like the whole day and like no bites like nothing but like I don't know I guess I'm like patient with fishing so like I don't really like it's not well obviously I'm sad because like I didn't catch anything but I still enjoy like being outside I feel like I'm really like outdoors person so I like spending my time in nature just like standing there with my fishing rod. No, it's not. I think it's, I think just the water around and being, it's just really tranquil. And yeah, the same thing with me. A lot of people say, you're not catching anything. Why are you enjoying it so much? But it's more just being out there, I think. 
but yeah, don't really enjoy the the smell of your hands after fishing. <laughs> oh, it gets super fishy. And actually, like I don't even eat fish. I just like catching them. I don't know. It's like, you know, when you like hook one and then they're trying to like get away and it's just so fun. I don't know. I don't know if it's just me, but I find that part so fun. And then if it's like a bass, like I know my mom really likes eating bass. I don't know. It's like a win-win situation. Like I have fun and like my mom gets to eat bass. So it's the thrill of the chase. So you probably get this question all the time, but what is the biggest bass that you've caught? I don't know. I don't think I weighed it, but I have a picture of it on my Instagram. Go check that out. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know how, I don't know how heavy it was. It wasn't that big and it wasn't that small. (laughs) Yeah. Somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm sure your mum will be very happy with you every time you come home with bass, fresh bass for dinner. And hopefully you share in the cooking as well, seeing as you're so into baking. So hopefully you share in the cooking part of the bass as well. So from start to finish, the whole supply chain process. (laughs) Yes. I don't know. It's just really satisfying. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. The hunt. It's all about the hunt, isn't it? Now, Talia, there was something else we wanted to talk to you about and and that was actually your YouTube channel because obviously you're, you have so many social media channel presences. You have your small business now. You have competitive badminton as well as you know getting into medical school. So what's the deal with your YouTube channel? What do you showcase on there? Okay, so basically I started my YouTube channel because I wanted to share my badminton experiences with everyone. And also I want to document my experiences because when I'm like 75, I can like look back at that and be like, wow. I did that. Whoa. Yeah, so there's a lot of tournament vlogs up there. My first video was actually a tournament vlog. And I also posted some training vlogs as well. And just like some random videos with my friends as well. There's just a mix of like a lot of random videos up there. I hope to post more training vlogs in the future, especially if I travel to other countries to train. Like I've trained in... um, China, like Guangzhou, China, and Hong Kong as well. But that was before I started my YouTube channel. But I really wished I started like before that. So I could have documented that because training there is like a lot different from how it is here. But unfortunately, I didn't start it back then. But yeah, I just want to like document everything and share my experiences with everyone. Great, great. So from there, when COVID kind of settles down and we have this goal towards the the Paris Olympic Games, do you think that you'll be trying to make your way back over to Asia, whether it be China, Hong Kong, to get the training in there? Or will you kind of stay more in Canada for your training? I think it'll depend with my tournament schedule. Because if I have a tournament in Asia, I'm not going to like if I have a, multiple tournaments in Asia, I'm not going to like fly to Asia for one tournament and then like come back to Canada to train like a week and then like fly back to Asia again. You know what I mean? Because that's like kind of a lot of flying and a lot of money as well. So I think if I can like make connections with other people and like network, hopefully like if I have tournaments in Asia, then I can ask around like if I can train with their national team for a bit or like same thing, like if I had tournaments in Europe, then like I can train in Europe for a bit. Yeah, I think training in like different countries is super important. Well, not important, but it's eye-opening because it's like so different. I feel like in every country and you learn different things because the coaches coach differently and like the drills they set are like different as well. Just like the whole atmosphere and the way the players' mindsets and like 
the environment is just different. Yeah. And because you didn't get to share your Hong Kong and China or Guangzhou experience on YouTube, what would you say to our badminton listeners as to what would be the reason you would travel to Hong Kong to play badminton or learn or get coaching in badminton? And what would be the reason you would go to Guangzhou? Like what would be the key, the key point or key learning that you got from each of those places? For Hong Kong, they have a very nice like facility and badminton's very much like supported by the government. The athletes there, they, cause I trained with them for a bit actually, cause I go to Hong Kong a lot. So every time I go back to Hong Kong, I kind of just like train with them. Like the whole atmosphere is just like different. Cause like, it's like a national team that trains together. And I think that's very important because like when you have like a team and you're like competing with each other internally, kind of, I think you, push each other to become better and you both improve that way. Whereas in Canada, it's like different because like we play at different clubs. Like we don't like the national team doesn't train together. Like everyone's like scattered across Canada and you just train at your own club. So I feel like that's really different. But I feel like having a team is like super important because that's how you like improve together. So that's like I guess my point for Hong Kong. And also they have very nice facility. Like their courts so big, like ceiling so high. It's like a stadium and they also have like a really nice gym and all the athletes, they like have a nice canteen, like good food. And they also have a place to live and it's like pretty nice as well. And for Guangzhou, China, major takeaway, probably that fitness is very important because when I was there, I trained with the guys team actually, because my connection was to the guys team coach. So yeah. It was kind of weird, but it was okay. The guys were, they were older than me and they were obviously like better than me. So I was always training with people that were better than me. So that was really good for me. And the coach really pushed my fitness. Cause I remember the first time I went, I don't know what year it was, but it was back when I like, didn't do any weights. My legs were like literally like chopsticks. I was really skinny, like no muscle. And then I think I went to China. I trained for maybe like a month or two months. And then I came back and literally my legs were like, like triple the size because <laughs> my coach made me do so much squats and um, running and like weights and everything. Yeah. My whole like body changed. It really helped me in like the badminton aspect because you can't have no muscle, you know? <laughs> so yeah. And he pushed me like really hard. I remember like being so sore and like improving a lot. And I think the first time I went to China was actually, I was actually playing like a tournament in Hong Kong at the same time. Cause like Guangzhou and Hong Kong are not that far. So like, I just like take the train and I think I was playing this like junior, like Hong Kong tournament. It's like pretty big. Like all the junior national team players from Hong Kong play in that tournament. And I just went back and forth between training and playing. Cause like the matches were like separated on different weekends. So I train and come back and then I ended up winning that tournament. And like my parents were so surprised because they were like, they just did not expect me to win. Because I think I remember I made a bet with my dad too. I was like, oh, like if I win, like you have to get me like a new iPhone 7. And it was like new at the time. And then he was like, okay, because he like thought I was going to lose. And I like won and I was like, yes. (laughs) And also like a lot of the Hong Kong players, because like they never seen me before too, right? So they're all just, whoa, like who is this girl? But yeah. That's all good. No, it's really good to hear about your experiences overseas because I guess maybe someone listening isn't sure about whether it's worth going overseas or not. Should they just stay in their local kind of training environment or should they go 
see some other countries or the way other people train, I think it's a really important point to bring to light that the other training styles are definitely something you should experience. And at the end of the day, you experience all a range of training types and then you'll work out what's the best for you or what resonates with you the most. Um, kind of like when you're saying when you're learning how to study, I'm sure you tried a few different ways to study and you figured out, hey, this is the best way I should study. Same thing with your training as well. So Talia, we are starting to wrap up this podcast. But before we do, if you have anything to say to the listeners or any of your followers or any of your friends out there who will be listening to this podcast, do you have any messages for them? From badminton, probably just work hard and fitness is very important. So like you really got to practice cardio, like fitness and weights. Cause if you don't have that fundamental, then like you can't really use your skills on the court and don't be afraid to go overseas, try training with new people and like reach out of your comfort zone. Cause like maybe like their training style is like, it fits you and you can like, learn from that and like take it back so when you go back home like you can apply that to your own training programs so that's like my badminton message i guess and then for life in general i just feel like life is short so just like do whatever you want not whatever you want think it through first but don't be afraid to like do what you're passionate about fantastic and I think that really shines through in the podcast episode. You are a bit of a go-getter from everything that you've talked to us about, Talia. So chase after what you want within reason, of course, but uh, don't let anything hold you back, listeners. So Talia, we are wrapping up. And before we do that, just wanted to firstly thank you from Jeff and I for coming onto the podcast. And for those listeners out there that want to follow you on your journey, whether they want to buy macarons from you, whether they want to you know, follow your badminton experiences on YouTube, what would be the best way to get in contact with you? Probably like my Instagram. You just send me a DM. My Instagram handle is talia.ngg. Should I spell it out? You're welcome to. Okay. Um, it's T-A-L-I-A dot N-G-G. Yeah, just shoot me a DM if you have any questions or just want to talk, I guess. Okay, great. So for those listeners out there, we will pop that in the description below as well as some of the other social media handles and and YouTube channel links for Talia in case you wanted to follow her there as well. So once again, thanks again, Talia. And we will see you soon. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.